we began talking a little bit about the divorce process, uh, Gittin. So uh, I want to introduce a very, very difficult, uh, painful subject that uh, there are a number of women that have been victimized over the years, really over the centuries, and that's the problem of what is called an aguna. Uh, an aguna literally means, uh, thank you so much, an aguna means an anchored woman, a woman who is not able to get married because she does not have a get. Until she gets, a, until she receives a get, she's not allowed to get married. Now, let me point out, there are two types of agunas. We will call a type one aguna and a type two aguna. A type one aguna is a very serious problem, uh, and it still exists even today. That's where the husband is simply missing. We don't know where the husband is. We don't know if he's dead or alive. Now, this is a real problem. This was a problem after the uh, Shoah, after the Holocaust. This is a problem after 9-11. In the modern state of Israel, it's a problem because soldiers like Gilad Shalit are sometimes kidnapped and held for many years, and we don't know if they're dead or alive. Now, let me point out a very important difference between halacha and secular law. Secular law does have a rule, actually that if a person is absent for seven years and we didn't hear anything about his whereabouts, he can be presumed dead. So legally, legally, not halachically, legally, if a woman wanted to marry after not hearing from her husband for seven years, she would be allowed to have him declared legally dead and she could marry, she could get social security survivor benefits, she can get all sorts of things because there is what is called a legal presumption of death. That's American. a secular, yeah, American, yeah, yeah, American. I'm sure it's different uh, Israeli law. Well, uh, for marriage, for sure it's different because Israeli marriage law follows halacha. Mm-hmm. Now, under Jewish law, under halacha, there is no such thing as uh, a presumption of death because halacha says the other way around. Halacha says you always assume that a pre-existing status continues until you know that it changed. So if a person was alive, and we don't know if they're dead or alive. In cases of doubt, we assume that they are alive. This is a very important principle. This is called chazaka. Chazaka means once a fact is established, it cannot be changed. We don't consider it changed until we know it was changed. Uh, so, and, and that's, the, that's even if a person's very old, even if a 90, 99-year-old person disappeared for five years. Uh, we would actually assume that they're still alive and they're 100 and uh, whatever, 106, or 104, rather, right? So based on this, if a person is missing in action, a woman is in a lot of trouble. Uh, Now, this is not because necessarily the guy's trying to hurt her. He might be a Holocaust victim. He might be a victim of terrorism, uh, whatever it would be. So this is what we call the type 1 aguna, when the husband is missing, just missing. Now, in truth, this was a problem that was already recognized in, ancient, in the ancient world. The Gemara tells us David HaMelech made a takana, <coughs> that in his army, every soldier that went to battle would give his wife a get, so that in the event he would be captured and she didn't know if he was dead or alive, she would not be an aguna and would be permitted to remarry with the understanding that if he came back, 
they would get remarried again. This is the famous reason why the Gemara says that when David had uh, relations with Bathsheba, you remember the story? Uh, he was not guilty of adultery because every soldier had given a get to his wife. He was guilty of what you might call spiritual adultery because the understanding was she was going to go back to her husband, but he was not guilty of technical adultery. The truth of the matter is, if David would have been guilty of adultery, he wouldn't have been allowed to marry Bathsheba because one who commits adultery cannot marry the woman with whom he committed adultery, even if her husband dies or divorces. Right, so <coughs> the <coughs> the divorce that he gave Bathsheba yeah. was technically like it wasn't an absolute divorce. It was like in the case that I disappeared. So th- there's 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 a machlokas we shown him. There's a machlokas among the commentators. I don't know if you study the book of Shmuel, maybe you discussed it in the class. Uh, there are those that say it was an absolute simple divorce. You are divorced. They would have to get remarried. They would have to get remarried. Others say it was a divorce that would become activated only on the condition that I would be gone without uh, you knowing where I was for 12 months or a certain period of time. So there is an argument, which means if I came back within the 12 months, there was, there was no divorce. So then but, he did. So the question becomes, he did come back, but on the other hand, David then sent him away, you know, and uh, he died in war. He did die in war. So it could be that the condition was fulfilled by virtue of the fact that he did die in war. After the fact, yeah. After the fact, but the, the idea is, this get is good if, if this is what happens, if I don't return from the battle. So the argument is, even if he returned, but then he went back and got killed, that was called not finally returning from the battle. You see, so uh, I mean, so so either way, it turns out that uh, the get was valid, valid, but David manipulated it to make the get valid, because the get wouldn't have been valid had he not sent him back uh, to the front. Yeah. Um, I assume it's not the same if the woman disappears. There's. Or is it that the man... Okay, so, so here's the thing. So let's, let's analyze this. The problem of the disappearing spouse is halakhically a much more serious problem for a disappearing husband than it is for a disappearing wife. And the reason is, if the husband disappears and we don't know if he's dead, there's no way his wife can remarry uh, because if she's, if she's a married woman, she cannot take another husband. If she remarries and the husband winds up to be alive... She's guilty of adultery. If she has any children from a second guy, those kids are mamzerim. They cannot marry into the Jewish people other than other mamzers or they could marry convert uh, people, converted Jews, but the kids would still be mamzer, right? Now, Masha'en Cain, if a wife is missing. So here's the thing. You have to remember that according to halacha, a man is allowed to have two uh, wives. Polygamy is permitted. It's only for Ashkenazim the ban of Rabbeinu Gershom that says polygamy is forbidden. So in truth, a man might not be given a heter to marry if his wife is missing, but if he did, it wouldn't be adultery and the kids wouldn't be mamzer. And it could also be that perhaps he would get a heter to marry because the ban of Rabbeinu Gershom can be lifted by a hundred rabbis. Uh, if there are extenuating circumstances, and it might be the unavailability of his wife might be deemed an extenuating circumstance. So as a result, 
the man who has a missing wife has certain options that a woman that has a missing husband does not uh, does These not options, have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if the woman refuses to accept it yet, it doesn't matter same reason because he can still marry. I mean, not that it doesn't Yeah, we'll, 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 get, we'll get to that. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is uh, a man can be an Aguntu. In other words, it's not so easy that uh, if a woman refuses to accept a get, the man may be stuck, but but he does have some options that a woman does not have. Again, we'll, 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 get, okay. we'll get to that. But right now we're talking about the missing in action Aguntu. Now let me point out that in the aftermath of things like 9-11, you know, even if you find body parts, that cannot establish death. I mean, for example, let's imagine you find a severed leg or a hand, that, and you can match it up to Reuven. Well, so what? That doesn't mean Reuven is dead. Maybe there's a Reuven walking around without a hand. You see? In other words, a body part alone, unless it's something like, you know, a, a torso or a heart or a head, you know, obviously, that would be enough. But a lot of severed body parts do not prove uh, death at all. So basically, there's a whole, whole b- bunch of halakha of what type of proof do you accept to establish death after mass calamities and the like, because this is a very big issue about Aguna. Now, I'm told that in 9-11, where there were <coughs> tragically um, many Jews who died and a number of religious Jews who died, uh, there were people who had the presence of mind, imagine this, husbands, to call up their rabbi and uh, give testimony. You know, a person can testify that he's about to die. Really? And he would give testimony, I'm about to jump out of the room, my name is Ruvain, the son of so-and-so, uh, I live at this is this an address, and based on this testimony, my wife uh, is allowed to, to marry. People, I understood that people did, that people actually placed placed cell phone calls right before they jumped out of a window or, or right before they died or whatever it is, they had the presence of mind that their wife shouldn't be in Aguna because you see it is a problem because uh, if we don't have any recoverable body, the body is destroyed or all you find is a hand or whatever it is and we don't know, did the guy die in the building, did the guy escape and the fact that he didn't contact you, that's not a proof anymore because maybe he had amnesia now, you can't just say, oh, if, if he would be alive, he would have contacted me. That, that, halakhically, that's not, good, that's not good enough, actually. Uh, because maybe people sometimes can have amnesia. They can have all sorts of, of things. So they actually placed calls. And these calls were part of the halakhic evidence that was used to allow. By the way, a, a victim of a murder can, can also testify uh, that he was murdered. In other words, uh, a person could say, you know, in front of uh, two witnesses, Ruvain, so and so stabbed me in the heart. You know, and, and that can be used uh, to convict. As a person is dying, as a person is dying, uh, he could testify that uh, who was the one that killed him. And then when he dies, the witnesses can say, "We heard it from uh, from Ruvain." You know, as it were. So th- there are different ways you can have testimony. So that's the type one aguna. That's a, a missing in action problem. And this comes, still comes up. It comes up, as I say, after the Holocaust. It comes up after 9-11. It comes up when Israeli soldiers are, are not even soldiers so much, but regular Israelis are kidnapped. And we don't, we don't know if they're dead or alive. So we need to have different rules uh, to try to establish when we can assume there is death and when, unfortunately, is the woman going to be an aguna. 
But the type 2 aguna, which is what we're going to talk much more about, is a different type of problem. That's where you have a husband. You know where the husband is. And the husband refuses to give his wife a get. We know where he is. He just refuses to give his wife a get. <coughs> now, why would I, even though, there, even though there might be a civil divorce. Now, in Israel, there's no such thing as a civil divorce. But in America, there is a civil divorce. But uh, halakhically, a woman is not divorced uh, until there's a get. Now, why would a man refuse to give his wife a get? Like, what is the psychology behind men who don't give their wives a get? So there are different reasons, <coughs> ranging from <coughs> not so bad reasons to you know evil reasons. Sometimes, although this is rare, a husband might genuinely want a reconciliation. He may want to kind of you know I want to work on the marriage. I don't want to divorce you. That's rare, but sometimes that's why a man might refuse to give a get. He wants shalom bias. <coughs> Other times, it's a negotiation to get some concession in property or visitation or custody. Now, even that, uh, you can make it into a bad thing or maybe not such a bad thing. One example might be that uh, blackmail, where he essentially says, I'll give you a get if you give me a million dollars, or I'll give you a get if you give me full custody of our child. Right? I'll give you a get if you give me the whole house and you give up your 50% ownership. Now that I think most people consider to be uh, corrupt and immoral because essentially it's blackmail. Meaning to say, I'll give you a get if you give me you know, something I want. However, there are going to be cases where even this may not be so bad. I mean, you could actually have some sympathy for the husband, although perhaps the women will not have sympathy for the husband. Uh, this was a case I, I was involved in a little bit. It became a famous case, actually, uh, in which uh, a couple got divorced and they had a, uh, in Maryland, and they had a uh, two-year-old uh, child. That's what they had. And uh, the husband worked in Maryland and his job was in Maryland. Uh, after the divorce, the wife moved back to Philadelphia to be with her parents. And as a result of her moving back to Philadelphia, the father didn't really have reasonable visitation with his child because he couldn't travel at week on weekends, especially during the winter, short Shabbos, you know, short Fridays. So he basically was holding up the get until she would agree to move back to Maryland where he could have his normal visita visitation schedule. And if she would agree to move back to Maryland, he would give her a get. So the question is, uh, do you look at him as like a bad guy? Or, uh, you know, I mean, I understand. If somebody says, I'll give you a get if you give me a million dollars, or I'll give you a get if you give me the house, I'll give you a get if you relinquish custody, we would call that unfair. We would call that blackmail. We would call that uh, intimidation. That's not good. That's a bad thing. On the other hand, uh, if a person is withholding a get simply because he wants to have the standard visitation on weekends uh, without a child being out of state, one might say this is his last, his last uh, chance, this is his last leverage. In fact, it's very often against the law anyway. In fact, it's very common in divorce cases that a parent with a minor child uh, cannot take the child out of state, cannot move out of state. So. 
I can tell you that people painted it in different ways. Some people invoke the mantra, oh, anybody who withholds a get to get an advantage is immoral. And they painted this guy as a big Russia. But, you know, I don't know. You know, <laughs> maybe I'm, maybe I'm uh, setting myself up for, for criticism. But I, I, I think there's a very big difference between somebody that's uh, trying to get an unfair benefit versus somebody who's trying, who was himself victimized, perhaps. On the other hand, it's a hard thing. She, she's now a single mother. She wants to be near her parents. I mean, uh, it's, a hard, it's a very, very hard situation that, that she needs to be near her parents because the parents could provide her uh, you know, care for her child if, she was, if she's working or going to school or whatever, whatever it was. On the other hand, uh, you know, the only thing he had from the marriage was his relationship with his daughter, and if it's out of state, he's not going to have a relationship with his daughter. So that's a hard case. You know, I, I, I wouldn't automatically call him a get abuser. But nevertheless, uh, that's the second reason people withhold the get. They try to get something from the other party, whether you call it blackmail or reasonable negotiation, but that's the second. Now, the third reason is pure spite. Sometimes a person has no benefit in withholding a get, he does so only to inflict pain. <coughs> we can call that a kamikaze mentality. You know, kamikaze pilots, those are the ones who destroy themselves when they crash their plane into a, into a US ship or whatever it would be. And these people don't care if they destroy their own lives, they just want to inflict pain. Right? So we have like three different motives of why people withhold to get. Sometimes for shalom bias, that's the, the rarest reason. Sometimes as a negotiation strategy, which might be immoral or it might be proper in some cases. And sometimes pure spitefulness. Now, a woman without a get is in a, is in a very, very difficult situation. If she's not religious, maybe she doesn't care. Uh, but it's a very, very serious situation. She's absolutely not allowed to marry. And if she marries, it is adultery under the law of the Torah. And if she has any children, they are mamzerim. And being a mamzer is a very serious status. Uh, as you know, uh, out of wedlock is not a mamzer. If a man and woman simply live out of wedlock, the child is Jewish, there is no disability. Not that out of wedlock is kosher, it's not. But the child has no disability. That's not, so the term illegitimate child is not an accurate translation for mamzer. But a mamzer is a child that is born from an adultery when a woman who is married <coughs> is, with, is with another man, married or single, and the kid is a mamzer. Now, a mamzer is a Jew. A mamzer counts for a minion. A mamzer wears tefillin. You know, a mamzer is a regular Jew, but a mamzer or a mamzeret, if it's a, a girl, has marriage restrictions. They cannot marry. They cannot marry other than other mamzerim, or they can marry ger or gioret, and whoever they marry, the kids are going to be a mamzer anyway. So it's going to keep on going and going and going. Now, the Torah says until the 10th generation, but the 10th generation is lavdafka. It means forever. It means forever and ever. Uh, there's a mamzer. So that's a woman's situation. Now, if, so if a man doesn't give a get, a woman is very, very stuck. Now, what if, just to answer your question, you alluded to it, what if the man wants to give a get and the woman refuses to receive the get? 
So under Torah law, per se, the man is not stuck. He could marry another wife. But, as we discussed, I think, Ashkenazim, since the 10 hundreds, have the ban of Rabbeinu Gershom, which does say that the husband cannot marry another wife, right? So at least the ban of Rabbeinu Gershom is going to stop the husband. So the husband can also be the, the masculine for Aguna. Aguna is an anchored woman. The masculine for a man is Agun, without the hay. So a man can be an Agun, just like a woman can be an Aguna. And, and, and there are such cases. There are actual cases of men who are not able to marry because their wives refuse to accept a, a get. But, but the ban of Rabbeinu Gershom is not as severe as the Torah law of adultery. And that is based on the idea that there is something called, a very unusual mechanism, called heter mea rabbanim. Heter mea rabbanim means <coughs> a heter, a dispensation, by 100 rabbis. And that is the following. If 100 rabbis in at least three countries, that's <laughs> me, three countries, agree that the ban of Rabbeinu Gershom should be lifted, they may sign a document and the ban will be lifted. Now let me give you a common example where the ban of Rabbeinu Gershom will apply. Let's say a wife is severely incapacitated. She is in a uh, coma. And uh, she could live many years in a coma. A, a person could be in a coma for, for 50 years. Uh, so the man desperately wants to get married, but he can't divorce, he can't divorce his wife. First of all, it would, be, it would be immoral to divorce his wife, but he can't divorce her anyway because she's not of competent mind to receive a get. Right, so we cannot, you cannot divorce, right? a man cannot divorce a woman in a coma, right? That, that's, that's simple. But a hundred rabbis will sign a document lifting the ban against polygamy so he, will be, he might be permitted to marry another wife. For this we, one person. And he's still married, huh? They can lift the ban for the one person. For one person, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's still married to the wife in the coma, meaning he has to pay for her medical care, he cannot divorce her, he is responsible for her, but he will be given permission to have polygamy, to have another wife. Because uh, that's considered to be an, uh, you know, an, uh, it's an extenuating circumstance, that he has a wife that's totally incapacitated. So the, ban of the lifting of 100 rabbis should not be done as a matter of course. But there are going to be cases where it might be possible. Uh, but for a uh, woman, let's say a woman whose husband's in a coma, there's nothing they can do because she's married to him and uh, he cannot give her a get. Right? So, so a man can be an agun just like a woman can be an aguna, but for a man, the issue is only the ban of Rabbeinu Gershom, and that can be lifted sometimes. And also, there's no issue of mamzer. If a man violates the ban of Rabbeinu Gershom and has children, from a second wife, the kids are not mamzerim, so it's not going to pass over to the uh, to the children. So because of this, aguna is normally described as something that women go through, although in theory men can experience it as as well. So the question becomes, what can halacha do for women 
in that unfortunate situation. Now, I, I do want to point out that uh, this is a serious problem, and uh, there are women that suffer for many, many years. There are women who suffer for many years, and uh, sometimes their problem is never resolved. So that, that's a very, very tragic point. But n the numbers that the press sometimes reports are, are exaggerated. Uh, sometimes the Jerusalem Post or other newspapers <coughs> will report thousands and thousands of women are in this uh, situation and uh, that is not true. Again, uh, again, even if there's only one woman, that's a serious problem. I'm not, I'm not demeaning the problem, but I, I just don't want you to think it's numerically as prevalent as is often reported. Probably at any one time, there are probably 50 to 100 women in the world who are suffering uh, the problem of aguna. And again, they, they, they often get resolved, meaning to say, I mean, a woman might be in Aguna for one day. You know, I mean, in other words, there is a rollover, meaning there are the Agunot 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah, yeah, there are. But I mean, a lot of Agunot, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, are short-term problems. I mean, you know, maybe it should be called Aguna, meaning to say uh, it took them a year to get a get. Okay, yeah, I mean, it shouldn't have taken a year, but you know, after a year, it was done. You know, so aguna is a, a bit of a, a protean term. You know, it can refer to the tortured women who have gone through 20 years without being able to rebuild their lives. And of course, by that time, it may be, they may be too old to get married or whatever, maybe very, very difficult. And then you have aguna. You know, I was in aguna for six months and, you know, turned over. You know, so, so that's why the numbers are big because they, 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 they're counting all of these cases, but a lot of these cases get turned over very, very quickly. But still, there are, there are certainly a core of some cases which are very, very serious and uh, very, very, very painful. Yes. Yeah. Um, when you're talking about like, maybe like 50 people in the world at a time, do you mean type 2 Aguna or, or are you talking about both? Oh, no, no, I'm talking about type 1 would be really difficult. Yeah, yeah. You can't really. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm talking about type 2. I'm not talking okay. about type 1 anymore. Uh, yeah, type 1, depending on what happens, uh, yeah. Yeah, everything now is type two. The woman whose husband refuses to give again. So, uh, yeah. Did you say that? No. A woman who commits adultery can't marry that man. That's correct. A woman who commits adultery, voluntary adultery. Right. Uh, there are two people she cannot uh, marry. She cannot stay married to her husband, mm -hmm. and she cannot marry the man with whom she committed adultery. Uh, she can marry every anybody else. Yeah. Doesn't he have to marry her if he's not married? No, no, that's not, that's not true. Uh, the, the rule that he has to marry her is talking about uh, he enticed uh, a single woman. Uh, if he enticed a single woman, then uh, if she wants, if she wants, he has to marry her. Uh, if she doesn't want, then, then he just pays money instead. But if he entices a married woman, it's the other way around. He is not allowed to marry her. It's an isher diorisa. This is called the sota. And uh, Sota is forbidden to the Baal, that means forbidden to her husband, and forbidden to the Boel, forbidden to the man with whom she had relations. Uh, this is an impo important rule to know, uh, because that actually means, even if you, the man didn't think it was adultery, let's imagine the woman had a civil divorce. I mean, imagine this, a woman had a civil divorce. She didn't have a get. She gets married to a guy. 
Now, nobody's religious. The guy, the guy thinks it's perfectly legal marriage. In the eyes of Halakha, that second husband has committed adultery with a married woman. So even if she winds up getting a get later, even if she gets a get later, she cannot stay married to the second guy. Because when she commits adultery with a guy, she cannot marry him even if her first husband dies or gives, gives a get afterwards. But in the example we were talking about earlier with King David, I thought you had said that the divorce wasn't necessarily legitimate because the husband was alive when, yeah. when they were together, but then the husband died later, which made like the get like yeah, yeah, but the difference—that's correct. But the difference was because a get had been given, meaning to say, a get had been given before the adultery on certain conditions having to be met later. But in a case where there was no pre-existing get that was even given, mm-hmm. see, you can't make a get retroactive before it was given. Mm-hmm. You can only make it retroactive from the time it was given. Yeah. So in the case of King David, you had you had a pre-existing physical get that Even had been given. Even though the conditions of the get hadn't been met at that moment, that's correct. They that's were correct. Met later, so it, that so that validated the get as of the time it was given. But where there was no get given till after the adultery, there's nothing you can do in a case like that. Yeah. Um, so the 5,200 people that you were saying before. Yeah. Is. Is that, does that include the people who are there for like one day or two days? Or is that, that includes the long term? Um, I think maybe we're talking about the long term. Uh, long term. Again, how, what is the long term? Are we talking about a year? You know, that's also going to okay. be a question. Uh, now there is, just for your own knowledge, uh, not, not that I endorse this necessarily, but I'll give you the information. <coughs> there is an organization that was started in New York, and it's now an international organization. Uh, it is called ORA. ORA is an abbreviation, O-R-A, and that stands for Organization for the Resolution of Agunot. It's a little bit of a pun because ORA also means light. And uh, the, the, head of the, org- the head of the organization is a fellow uh, Rabbi Jeremy Stern, a young rabbi who actually made Aliyah, so now he lives in Ramat Beit Shemesh. And they have a website, you can look up ORA. And uh, they help women who have difficulty receiving gittin from their husbands. And they do it in a lot of ways. They try to negotiate with their husbands. They also have, this is where it gets controversial, they have rallies. They do uh, Facebook, they organize Facebook rallies, uh, marching, petitions. Uh, against they, Yeah, against, well, both against the husband and against uh, his family, because sometimes the family, there's strange dynamics here. Sometimes it might be the husband's parents uh, who are encouraging the husband not to give a get for whatever crazy reason. Uh, and they, they, also organize, they also organize rallies at the person's place of work, you know? And uh, there's a lot of, uh, so you, you can check now. I, I, I'm gonna get into this, because I'm getting ahead of myself. There's a lot of halakhic difficulties here. Uh, but just be aware, that uh, often uh, in the modern uh, Orthodox communities, uh, there's a great deal of uh, social action to encourage or maybe coerce even, put pressure on, maybe not coerce, but put pressure on husbands uh, to give uh, gittin. And one of the main organizations that does this is ORA. And again, you could check their uh, website and see what they do. 
they claim that they have helped uh, over 300 women receive gets who might otherwise not uh, receive, uh, not have received the get because of Aguna. Uh, so essentially, part of what they're doing is they're operating on the basis of what you might call shaming, basically. Uh, and again, again, I'm not saying that that's wrong. Shaming meaning to say you put, you, you pressure a person to act by making it very embarrassing and shameful for them to withhold to get because uh, they go to work and they have uh, you know, people with placards saying get abuser or whatever, whatever it would be, what type of man are you type of thing. Uh, and especially his family gets, gets ashamed. So, you know, so shame can be a motivator in life, as it were. But we're going to see, as, as you get, as you, hopefully you'll understand the halachas a little better as we go, that you know, maybe it's not so pushed. Uh, that this is legitimate. I'll also tell you something else from my own maybe more limited experience, that sometimes the way you convince a person to give a get is not by shaming them, because shaming them can sometimes, sometimes, have the opposite effect. It makes a person get defensive, it makes a person get self-righteous, it makes a person dig in their heels and almost convince themselves they're going to be a martyr, because often what happens, it's a very complicated idea here, often the guy doesn't give a get, but he convinces himself that he's a tzaddik. He convinces himself that he's acting out of principle. You know, he doesn't look at himself as selfish. He basically says, I was wronged, and she needs to have a lesson, and I have to give her musr, and I have to give her tochacha, and this is the way I'm going to give her musr. I'd like to give her a get, but no, she, you know, I can't do it. It's not the right thing to do. So the person has a certain self-righteousness, it's a delusion. But when he's self-righteous, then when he has difficulties like shaming, it almost becomes al-kiddush Hashem. Al-kiddush Hashem, I will take the embarrassment. I will take the humiliation because I'm acting l'shem shemaim. It sounds really, really crazy, right? But uh, this is the mentality. Al-kiddush Hashem, I will be humiliated. You know? So paradoxically, sometimes the way you reach a person is by flattering him. By saying, yeah, I mean, I, I, and initially you have to kind of hear Lush and Hara, you know, he'll say, my wife did this and that. He says, yes, 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 your wife is a real, real bad person. <laughs> but, but you're better, you're better than her. You're better than her. You're a good person. You're a kind person. You're not going to sink to her level. And I, I know this may, may get you disgusted, but I, I understand it gets the rabbi disgusted too sometimes. But it actually helps when a person sometimes feels that they're not the villain, they're not demonized, then they're willing to do something that's better, that, that's good. So this is the opposite of Ora's approach. Ora kind of moves into the shaming and the embarrassing, which you know, sometimes works. It often, I guess it often works. But I can tell you from my own experience that sometimes the opposite of building somebody up can also work. Because the truth of the matter is, in, in, in all divorces, uh, there tends to be you know, fault on both sides. Everybody did something bad to the other person, etc. And if you can give a person the ability to talk about their side of things, then they would be willing to kind of do the magnanimous thing. So, so this is where the rabbi has to be a bit of a psychologist in knowing when do you kind of shame people, when do you embarrass them, when do you come out strong, and when in the other way you do the opposite, you try to flatter them, build them up, uh, kind of convince them that they are the 
better, more righteous person in this transaction, and that can encourage people to do the right thing. So uh, it's, a, it's a tricky negotiation. Yeah. Like, I know all of That's, 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 that's probably so. Again, again I, I, I think Aura does uh, largely very, very good work. Uh, I'm happy that there is such an organization. I, I think as we'll go on, you'll, you'll see the, the, the particular problems with some of the techniques that they use. But yeah, I mean, Aura is, uh, the staff of Aura is 100% committed to helping women. And um, rabbis didn't, don't like to get involved in these cases. That's, that's very true. I mean, they'll get a little involved, but, you know, if somebody is really a tough nut to crack, you know, at some point, most rabbis throw, throw up their hands. They say, I can't do anything. You know, I talked I talk to him and he didn't listen. What am I supposed to do, right? So Ora is persistent. They keep on working and working and working and working, and they don't, they don't stop. So as a result, Baruch uh, Hashem, they tend to be, uh, they tend to be successful. So, of course. Well, 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 I mean, Ora's staff are rabbis too. I mean, uh, you know, is not. I mean, Ora is a partial, partially a rabbinical organization as well as a lay organization. No, rabbis should do it, of course. But rabbis do a lot of things. I, I mean, the question becomes uh, time and energy. Uh, in other words, um, a rabbi is faced with an aguna case, but a rabbi may have a hundred other different cases, agunas and not agunas. So, the point basically is that a, a single rabbi is not always positioned to put the energy and the time that's necessary in a particular case because there are other things that are going around. Now, let me mention one thing. Uh, this might be a key to it, and that is coordination. I mean, let, let's take a typical, let, let's talk about the United States for a moment. Uh, typically, uh, any Jewish community will have more than one show. Be a lot of shows. There be Chabad shows and non-Chabad shows and Haredi shows and maybe Hasidic shows. At least if it's a big, bigger city, and uh, modern Orthodox shows, right, etc. Now these shows don't communicate with each other. So let's assume that a man has not given a get to his wife, right? So uh, the rabbi of his show might say, you know, if you don't give a get to your wife, you're not welcome here. So he'll just walk across the street and go to another show where they don't, they don't even know the case. So in some communities, they actually make rules that all of the shows in the community together will not allow this person to come to the show unless he gives a get to his wife, kind of unified, unified action. But again, I'm getting a little, little ahead of myself here. Uh, let, let's talk about it from a woman's perspective, and let's talk about how does a woman get a get if the husband doesn't want to give one, right? So she feels she wants a divorce. So both in Eretz Yisrael and in Chutz Laaretz, the process starts the same way. She files a request in a basin. 
Now, if the husband is willing to give a get, they just go to a basin and the basin writes a get. She doesn't have to file anything. But assuming he doesn't want to give a get, she files a request for a psak basin. The basin, now every community has a basin. <clears throat> the basin is supposed to decide is she entitled to a get or is she not entitled to a get? So the first step that has to go through is, is she entitled to a get? So let's ask this question. What are the halachic grounds that entitle a woman to a get? Like what is the basis of a woman's claim that the basin will order the man to give the get. Order the man. Now, again, if the man wants to give the get and it's consensual, there's no problem. But, but if the man doesn't want to give a get, what are the grounds that a basin will say you must give a get? Yeah. I have a question. Just to zoom out for a second, yeah. um, I don't know if you've addressed this before, but why is it on the man to give the female a get? Like, yeah. why is, why is it? Case that the woman is like held up from the man. Right, and right, then right. I also know that you were going to talk about like a prenup. I, I am going to talk about okay. it. That, that much for sure. I guess like understanding like why. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, so I'll, I'll give you first a technical answer, a very, very technical answer, and that is the whole law of Jewish divorce is from Parshaski Seitze in the book of Devarim, uh, Perek Chafbeis, chapter 22, Deuteronomy 22. And if you open up the Chumash, you see very, very explicitly that a man, uh, if a man is getting divorced from his wife, the man must write or authorize the writing of a bill of divorce, and he must deliver it into her hand. And then she is uh, no longer married to him. So the, the action of divorce as described explicitly in the Torah, this is not even a rabbinic interpretation, uh, is that the man is the one that must effect. The man or his agent, we talked about the fact that he could have a shaliach. The man or his agent must be the one who delivers the physical get to the wife or her agent. Now, uh, so, so that's very, very, as a matter of halacha, it's absolutely clear that a woman cannot divorce a man. The most a woman can do is she can file a request in Basin that will order the man to give again. That's, that's the most she can do. Now, if you ask me why is it the case, right? I showed you how I know it's the case, and I do know it's the case because that is the way the Chumash is written, but if you ask me why is it the case that only a man can divorce a woman and a woman cannot divorce uh, a man, uh, it is a good question, but, but, one way of looking at it, of course, this is a famous answering a question with a question, <coughs> is that divorce that terminates marriage is symmetrical to the creation of marriage itself. In the Jewish marriage ceremony, what does the husband do? He gives the ring to the wife, right? And that goes back to the Kabbalistic idea of uh, mashpia. Uh, right, the man is the gives the the, the woman receives and builds up, etc. Mashbia makabel. 
So the divorce procedure is symmetrical to the marriage procedure itself. In other words, a marriage is severed in the same way that the marriage is created. Although I, I understand that just raises the questions of why are marriages that way. Uh, but, but still, given the reality of a Jewish marriage ceremony, the divorce ceremony matches it up that, uh, that, that way. So a woman goes to basin. So now the question is, what, when will a basin order a man to give again? So here is the thing. Big machlokas. According to the Rambam, this is amazing, according to the Rambam, the basin will order a man to give again any time a woman says, I don't want to be married to him anymore. In other words, the Rambam basically says the woman has an unconditional right to a get. She can't give the get. That's important. She can't give the get. But she has an unconditional right to a based in order directing the man to give the get. And the Rambam's language, I think, would be favored by uh, liberated women. The Rambam's language is because a wife is not a maidservant or a slave to be forced to live with a man that she doesn't want to live with. So according to the Rambam, it would actually be fairly easy for a woman to get her court order, her based in order, that the man must give again. Unfortunately, maybe tragically, however, there is another view in halacha that has become dominant, and this is the view of Rabbeinu Tam, now, Rabbeinu Tam, uh, you may have come across. Uh, his, his name was Rav Yaakov ben Meir. He was called Tam, because just like Yaakov, Avinu was called perfect. So he was called our teacher, the perfect one. But it's Yaakov ben Meir. And uh, most notably, Rabbeinu Tam is Rashi's grandson. And one of the greatest uh, scholars. Rashi, as you know, had no uh, sons. Rashi had some very, very learned daughters. <coughs> and uh, their, uh, the, the husbands of the daughters were also great Talmidei Chachamim, and their sons in particular, the grandchildren of Rashi, became very, very great. Uh, Rabbeinu Tam uh, is one. Uh, his brother, the Rashbam, Rav Shmuel ben Meir, uh, is another. Uh, and uh, they are the foundation of Tosfos, right? If you learn a, a page of Gemara, so you have Rashi's commentary, and then you have the additional notes of Tosvos, and there are many scholars of Tosvos, but the foundational scholars are Rashi's grandchildren and the like. And Rabbeinu Tam takes a different view than the Rambam. Again, all of this is based on Talmud, on Talmud meaning it's not just they made things up. I mean, I, I'm cutting out a lot of things. They go through Talmudic sources and they analyze the Talmudic sources. But the bottom line of Rabbeinu Tam is the following. He does not accept that a woman should be able to get a get just by alleging she doesn't want to live with the guy. She has to have some substantiation and basis for her claim, such as abuse, uh, non-support, refusal to cohabit, no, to live together. Uh, And again, abuse can be physical, can also be very severe emotional abuse. Uh, and the like. In other words, like Rabbeinu Tam, it's going to be a bit more of a complicated issue, meaning according to Rambam, if a woman says she wants a divorce, the basin's going to order a man to give again. That's the end of the story. According to Rabbeinu Tam, 
the base then has to kind of investigate, hmm, is he really a bad guy? Did he abuse her? Because, you know, sometimes it's going to be a, yeah, I mean, like all, all cases of abuse are very difficult to document. A he said, she said type of case. And then, of course, you get into all sorts of murky issues. Once you talk about emotional abuse, it's very, very tricky. Emotional abuse is a tricky type of term, emotional abuse. There is, emo- of course, there's such a thing called emotional abuse. But, you know, uh, a guy yelled once because dinner was late, you know, emotional abuse, you know, one time, you know. Uh, in other words, different dayanim, different judges, will look at things in a different way, right? Uh, some will consider something to be highly abusive behavior, and others would say, eh, not so bad. Which means, the point I want to make is simply this. Since the halacha follows Rabbeinu Tam rather than the Rambam, it is not a done deal that a woman will always be able to get a psak that she's entitled to a get. Maybe she will, maybe she won't. The Beistin may recommend a get, they may suggest a get, they may say it's a good idea, but they won't automatically order it unless there's clearly abuse, non-support, abandonment. If the halacha would have been like the Rambam, uh, a woman's ability to get a psak din would be much, much easier. But I have to be honest with you, the halacha does not follow the Rambam. The halacha follows Rabbeinu Tam's shita. And as a result, it may depend. Maybe she'll get, maybe not. Now, here is the thing. Let's trace both scenarios. If a woman does not get a psak based in, then there's almost nothing that the halakha, I mean, basically the halakha says she's not entitled to a get, so she's stuck at that point. And all we can use is persuasion. She's not even an She's not an akuna. that's a big mistake. The fact that she wants a get, if the halakha does not entitle her to a get, she's not an akuna. that's correct. But let's say she gets that psak. She gets that psak. But she's not divorced yet. Because what does the psak say? The psak just says the husband must give her a get. That's great. But you understand, a statement that the husband must give her a get is not the same as she has a get. What if the husband says no? So here, I need to tell you, there's a big, big difference between Israel and outside of Israel. In Israel, once a woman gets a psak, there's a lot of things she can do. And the reason is the following. In Eretz Yisrael, matters of marriage and divorce are governed by halacha, meaning the sec- which means the bastins for marriage and divorce are part of the legal system of the state of Israel. What a bastin decides about a get is equivalent to a secular judge deciding. So that means in the state of Israel, if a man is ordered to give a get, he's ordered to give a get. Now maybe she won't get that order, but if, if she gets a psak that he's ordered to give a get, if he doesn't give a get, number one, uh, he can lose his passport. He can lose his driver's license. In Israel, huh? In Israel, he said? In Israel, Israel, yeah. Uh, in an extreme case, he can go to jail and he will stay in jail until he gives his wife a get. <coughs> so this is, comes from the fact that the Knesset has passed laws about enforcing the judgments 
of the courts of the state of Israel. And the point is, a Beit Din on a matter of divorce is a court of the state of Israel. So the Knesset really helps us out here. Uh, the Knesset can actually take away the passport, take away your driver's license. And when I say you, mean the husband's driver's license. Uh, it can garnish his wages, take his wages away uh, to pay his wife until he gives a get. And it can even throw him in prison. When you say a psak, does yeah. that mean that they, they say you, <clears throat> they don't just suggest that you should give it? That's correct. They say you are chayev, you must give again. Right. Now, she may not get that psak, and if she doesn't get the psak, none of these avenues are open. But once she gets the psak, in Israel, the psak of the Beitin is very, very enforceable. But I want to point out that even in Israel, this is not going to work in all cases. First of all, some, women, some men who don't give getting to their wives are already in jail. Some of them are serving, some of them are serving life sentences. So what are you going to do to them? Maybe solitary, you know, I think people talk about that you know, and, and the like. Uh, that's one thing. Second of all, this doesn't always solve the Israeli husband who is not in Israel. What if he you know, managed to get to the U.S.? What's going to happen, you see? So there, there, are, there are going to be cases that fall between the cracks. But by and large, uh, Israel has a pretty good system once the woman has a psaq based in because the laws of the Knesset will enforce the psaq based in in a lot of different different ways. So this is a big question. What's involved? Like, is there a way to change halakha? Well, again, I I I, I have a, I have a lot okay. to say about this. So we'll, we'll, uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, my, your your questions will be answered as we go through this. Now, let's take chutzlaritz and do the same thing. A woman goes to Basin, and a woman gets a psak. Same thing. Psaka based in, in New York. What happens? So here, unfortunately, outside of Israel, a psak based in just doesn't carry the same significance. Let's take the United States, but the same thing is true for every country other than Israel. We have separation of church and state. A based in said something, so what? The secular government is not going to enforce what a religious court says. So in Israel, if a woman has a psak based in, she could get him thrown in jail unless he gives a get. Now, you will be let out of jail when you give a get to your wife. What that actually means is we will call the sofer and the witnesses to your prison cell. You will dictate a get. We will give a get to your wife and then we will open your jail cell and you can go free. That's he how it's going to work. Huh? No, he doesn't have to dictate it, no, but, you know, but there has to be a... So, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't have to know what to get said. But uh, basically, he'll be told, you know, authorize the sofer and the witnesses to come to your prison cell, write the get, and not write, you know, the sofer will write the get, it will be given to your wife or, or her shaliach, she probably won't want to be at the prison cell, and when the get is delivered, we will let you out of jail. That's how it works in Israel. Or it could work in Israel that way. But in America, a based in ordered me to give a get. And I just didn't do it. 
What's going to happen to me? So, the truth of the matter is, outside of Eretz Yisrael, the enforceability of a Psak Basin is much, much limited. According to the Shulchan Aruch, we can put the guy in Cheyrim, we can excommunicate him. Which means we can announce if the Basin of Baltimore ordered a man to give a get, or the Basin of Crown Heights ordered a man to give a get. Now again, maybe they'll order it, maybe they won't, but assuming they ordered it, if the man does not give the get, let's say within 30 days, whatever number of days they say, he is excommunicated. That's called cheyrim. Okay, what does it mean to be excommunicated? Well, it technically means that uh, you're not allowed to be within four amos of him, you're not allowed to talk to him, you're not allowed to do business with him, he can't go to show. he can't be counted for a minion. It can be pretty strong pretty strong stuff. And he will be in Cheyrim until he gives again. So Cheyrim can be very, very strong, very powerful in what you call a homogenous community, meaning if I'm a Lubavitcher who wants to be part of Crown Heights, or I'm a Satmer and I want to be part of Satmer, if I'm put in Cheyrim, that's pretty, pretty strong. But in the modern world we live in, communities are often not that homogenous, meaning to say, uh, the Basin of Crown Heights put me in Chayram. All right, so I'll go to Lincoln Square Synagogue in New York. You know, in other words, the synagogues don't, don't coordinate with each other. You know, and uh, even rabbis will often say, oh, I don't want to get involved. I don't know the details. So a Chayram doesn't work unless either you want to be part of a particular community very much or the communities across the board coordinate and they often don't coordinate, you see? So I could be a cheyrem in Crown Heights and I'll just move to Williamsburg or Borough Park. No, it's not going to follow me necessarily. Now, it shouldn't be that way. A cheyrem should really be accepted by everybody, but it often isn't because part of that is our own fighting. If, if, if Satmer fights with Chabad, so uh, Chabad's cheyrem is not going to be accepted by Satmer and vice versa because of the other issues that they have. In, in various ways. So cheyrim is one, one uh, solution, which sometimes works, sometimes not. It depends on how much the husband wants to be part of the community. Uh, denial of synagogue honors, denial of alias, but again, you, know, you have other shuls, you know, you know, things, things like that. So, but, but that's one thing a basin can do. Uh, and then we get to what Ora, what Ora does. Ora does Facebook rallies and you know, those types of things. That's when you get into the shaming. Because halacha does permit you to shame a person if they're violating a psak of a basin. Okay. But as I say, even that doesn't always work. So the point I'm making is, the point that I want you to walk away with is that when a woman goes to basin, the procedure of the basin is the same both in Israel and in Chutzlaretz in terms of what are the grounds that they would order a man to give a get. However, where they diverge is, how do you enforce the decision once there is a psak? In Eretz Yisrael, <coughs> there are very, very powerful mechanisms of enforcement based on the laws of the Knesset. Uh, in Chutz Laaretz, it depends on... Uh, Cherem, which may or may not be... Cherem can sometimes be very strong, but often it's, it's nothing. And it depends on shaming, and it depends on rallies. 
uh, and, and, and the like. So you don't have the same assuredness uh, that you would have in Eretz Yisrael. And that's why the Aguna problem is much greater in Kutzla Oretz than it is in Eretz Yisrael because the problem of the Bate Din is not that the Beis Din doesn't adjudicate, but that the Beis Din decision cannot be enforced because of separation of church and state in which outside of Eretz Yisrael, the decisions of religious courts are not enforced by the secular system. Now, what is sometimes done is informal enforcement, like hiring the mafia or hiring goons. And this is done, this is done. Uh, but it's very important uh, that you understand this. Sometimes what happens is there are people who, for money, will, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you know the guy, but make you an offer you can't refuse, uh, and they will you know, come and beat up the husband and break his arm, or threaten to break his arm. Uh, could be Jews, could be Goyim. But I want to point out something that you need to know. Besides the fact that that's illegal, you can go to jail for that, and in fact, I'll, I'll tell you a story about that. Halacha permits it only if there's a psak basin. People misunderstand this. If a woman does not have a psak of a basin that the husband must give her a get, and she gets goons to beat up the guy, the get is invalid. But it is true. If she has a decision of a basin and he's not honoring it, Halacha permits her to hire the mafia to beat him up. But it's very important. She can only hire the mafia if she has a decision of the Basin. If she does not have a decision of the Basin, uh, the get is not valid. It's a, it's a coerced get without a decision of a Basin. So it's, people make that mistake. A lot of times, uh, sometimes women want to jump the gun, <laughs> literally, and hire the mafia uh, first. Now, there actually is a case. I, I don't think they're in jail now, but this was a rabbi I once worked with. I was not involved in this part of his uh, activities. Um, in which, I mean, the whole thing was kind of corrupt. Uh, a woman wanted, needed a get, or a woman wanted a get. So he assembled a basin that was like judge and jury. He kind of said, for $20,000, we will adjudicate your case, we will determine that he has to give a get, and we will enforce our decision as well. In other words, uh, they would paskin that she's entitled to a get, and then they would... Uh, U.S., yeah. And then they would tie up the husband and they would apply things like a cattle, an, electri- an electric cattle prod to his genitalia uh, in which, you know, he'd give a get because it hurts, you know. Uh, so what happened was uh, some husband like complained to the FBI about this and the FBI had a sting operation, very, very fascinating. What happened was they had this woman who was an FBI agent but she comes, she comes as a from, she portrays herself as a from woman that says, now entrapment, uh, my husband refuses to give me a gift, you know, can you help me? And they say, yeah, we can help you, $20,000, uh, and, you know, we'll adjudicate that you're entitled to a get. And uh, they trapped the husband somehow. The husband was another FBI agent. And they were about to uh, electrocute him. And then, of course, you had 30 FBI coming through the door <laughs> the last minute, you know, they were watching. So, so this rabbi, I, I mean, I actually had worked with this rabbi on, on something else, not on this. This like, rabbi... Is a real basin? Well, well it's, a, it's a puzzle basin because of bribes and everything else. But, but, but they acted, they, they claimed to be a real basin. 
Uh, so I can tell you, the, the rabbi went to jail. The rabbi went to jail for at least five years. I mean, I think he's out now. But he and his uh, other other members went to jail for extortion. Were all those gets also invalid after? They, they might be. They might be. They might be invalid. It's a very serious issue. Because if the basin, if the basin was not a valid basin, then the compulsion, see, only a basin can allow compulsion. Compulsion without a valid basin, the get is puzzled. The get itself is puzzled. So this this actually did 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 happen. And uh, but again, halachically, goons are okay if there's a legitimate basin sign. You, uh, you'll still get in trouble legally. You'll still get in trouble legally. The FBI doesn't care if there's a basin or not. Uh, but halachically, if you can get away with it, you can use uh, informal uh, goons. Uh, for this, Jewish or not Jewish, even non-Jewish uh, are fine. Would you have to have a get if he's not Jewish? No, 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 no. I, I mean to say you can use mafia that's not Jewish. No, no. If the husband is not Jewish, you don't need a get. Yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah. I was talking about who you're using to beat up, beat up the husband. Jewish mafia, Italian. Yeah, Jewish, Italian. All of them. All of them are. All of them are good. Uh, yeah. I have a question. Just to clarify something you said way at the beginning. Yeah. No problem. Did you mean that, like, when we're talking about needing to have like a reason for a get? Yeah. You think if it's consensual, you don't need a reason. You don't need a reason. That's that's correct. If husband and wife decide that they don't want to be married anymore, or even if one doesn't want and the other one says, "If that's what you want, I'll go along with you," they can go to a base. Now, 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 informally, the basin may still say, "Well, why don't you go to counseling?" I mean, they may still discourage it, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to be a formal. Reason. Yeah, they can just, just say, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's only when uh, the husband refuses that the basin will only order a get if, if there's a grounds, grounds for it. Now, can if a wife refuses, yep. can a husband order a get? Uh, interestingly enough, uh, no, actually, no. Uh, only the husband can be ordered to give. The wife is not ordered to receive. On the other hand, Keep in mind that if she's totally unreasonable, they may take off the ban against Rabbeinu Gershom of 100 rabbis, yeah. and that would allow him to effectively uh, marry. Right. Sure. In fact, but there was then, just... Then, yeah. Well, I guess you still get a civil divorce, doesn't it? A civil divorce you can get. Well, you know, I was thinking, yeah. like, if he wanted to divorce her, but he couldn't... I think it's different. If your wife is in a coma, like, you probably should financially support her. Yeah. But if she's just refusing to receive the get, then... Is he obligated to still like financially support her? No, no, he's not. He's not. He's not. He's not. Uh, he can get his obligations cut off by a basin determination. In other words, if the basin determines that she should receive a get, even though they can't order her to do so, they can terminate his financial uh, responsibility for her. Mm-hmm. So if a uh, man wants a get and she doesn't want to get, yeah, the, and. I guess only if he has valid reason could they lift the ban of the Yeah, that has to be valid reasons. He can't uh, just do it because he just wants it. And also, what if what if um, a husband passes away, and the as in what? How, how do they get divorced? Is that just like on, an automatic divorce? If the well, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. In other words, death oh, death right. terminates a marriage without divorce. You don't need divorce. You don't need a divorce. Uh, death death terminates marriage. Uh, there's no question. How does that work with Trias Amesim? Interesting question. Um, let's assume, right, husband dies or wife dies, and then there's resurrection of the dead eventually. Mm-hmm. 
Does that bring back the marriage, or, or they would have to get a new marriage? Okay, that's a question. Does death permanently sever a marriage, or can a marriage come back? They address that in the Talmud? Not in the Talmud directly, but the, uh, the halakha literature talks about it. Yeah, for sure. In fact, it, it talks about this case. Elio Hanavi. Elio Hanavi was the only person, or maybe one of the few, few people, <coughs> who did not die. He went to heaven... Uh, with his human body. So the question is, uh, did his wife, uh, could his wife remarry? <laughs> there was no doubt. He didn't give her a get, he didn't die. Right? So the question is, uh, he went up to Shemayim. Does that terminate a marriage? Right? So Machlokas, the wife of Elio, is she permitted to marry somebody else? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. There's no get at all, no. But yeah. the question is, yeah, that's the issue, meaning meaning to say a missing in action person, we're not sure if he's dead or alive, so that's why they gave a get. If we knew that he died, there would be no halachic problem, per se, because he's dead. You don't need any get when a person is uh, when a person is dead. That's true for either the wife dies or the husband or the husband uh, dies. Uh, the only thing is though, let me let me just point out that if somebody dies without children, there is a potential complication. Uh, here, for, th- th- that's the idea of Eva, meaning if a man dies without any children, so his widow, his widow is not allowed to remarry until, unless she either marries her husband's brother or the husband's brother releases her by a chalitza ceremony, right? You're familiar with this again? I think, I think we talked about it. Uh, yibam, yibam is called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage says that the brother of the deceased should marry the childless widow in order to perpetuate the seed of the deceased brother. But if she doesn't want, or he doesn't want, either one, or he's already married, or whatever it would be, so there's a ceremony where she, she, she is the one who actually does this, she takes off his shoe, and she spits, now it doesn't say spits in his face, spits in front of him, kind of disparagingly, and says, so shall be done to the man who does not want to rebuild his brother's home. And at that point, she is now permitted to marry anybody she wants, except the Kohen, because getting chalitza is like getting a get, so she cannot marry a Kohen. And uh, this is, now among Ashkenazim, strangely enough, we don't even give them the yibum option, meaning even if they do want to get married, we go straight to chalitza. We go straight to chalitza. We don't uh, do the yibum at all. We're not allowed to. Uh, today we're not allowed to do it. Uh, no, yibum is the marriage. Uh, so today we don't do the marriage. We don't do the marriage option. We only do the chalitza option. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, even if they both want, even if they're both single, even if they both want, uh, we don't allow it today. Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult reason, actually. I mean, the reason actually is because technically marrying your brother's uh, widow is incestuous normally, but it's only... In other words, if there would be children, it would be actually forbidden, but it's only permitted for the mitzvah of perpetuating seed, and uh, therefore, if the intention is not totally l'shem shamayim oh. for that purpose, it's considered sinful. So Ashkenazim do not do the Yibam at all. They only go straight to the Chalitza. That's the only thing that's done. Uh, Sephardim do allow uh, Yibam uh, 
as a preferred. Actually, it's clear from the Torah that Yibam is the preferred option. That, that's very clear. I mean, the Torah sets up ma- the marriage as the better thing. And if you don't do that, we have this release ceremony. So it's a strange that Ashkenazim take what is clearly the second best uh, choice and they make it the only choice. I think I told you that uh, Chalitza is very important. A woman needs Chalitza. I mean, it, it's, 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 she cannot, she is not allowed to marry unless she has this Chalitza ceremony. Would children be considered non-severe if she got married? Uh, no, no, it's not, it's not that severe. It's, it's not as severe as adultery, but it is a severe thing. So I, I uh, but you know, you don't see it that often. Uh, it's a very unusual ceremony. <coughs> so I remember hearing there was going to be a chalitza in Baltimore. I wanted to go see it. Um, and this turned out to be a non-religious woman who was married to a non-religious guy. She didn't care. But the brother of her husband became a Balchuva. He was living in Yerushalayim, and he was very religious. And he insisted that his sister-in-law go through this chalitza ceremony, which she didn't care at all. Uh, huh? Is it his obligation? It, it's, well, no. It, I, I mean, if she doesn't care, it's technically not his obligation. But, but, but he, he wanted to do it, so she agreed, and she figured it would be like a private little thing, like two minutes. So she walks in. I remember, I feel bad for her. She walked into a room. There are 500 people staring at her because everybody wanted to see Chalitza. You don't see it that much. And she really got, like, really upset. Like, you know, the rabbis had to take her into the office and calm her down. Uh, she felt very invaded. You know, and, I, and I understand that because she yeah. didn't expect this to be a huge public uh, ceremony. Uh, but, you know, the chalitza took, it only takes like five minutes, but, uh, but everybody wants... I didn't see it anyway. There are 500 people. I didn't see anything. <laughs> any, so I, I missed it anyway. Uh, but it's a special boot. It's, it's not that, you know, you don't just take off the guy's shoe. It's a special, like, Viking boot that's laced, you know, up there. And they have traditions, like basins have things that are hundreds of years old that they keep in the basin. You know, shoes. the shoe, the chalitza shoe. Where's the fit? Huh? Well, it's kind of an all size. It's like a very soft, like leather, like it's a moccasin with uh, straps. So you know, whatever size your foot is, uh, the man's foot is, you know, it could it could fit in. And she has to like pull it off, you know. Yeah. Say, say again. Do you know the that like went for the Yeah, so there was an article. I, 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 there was an article in uh, the OU Jewish Action. I think it was an interview with the last because even Spartan don't do it today that much. Uh, the last woman that had Yibam. Uh, it was very very interesting. She like died like a few years ago, uh, and it was a beautiful thing, beautiful story because she described the fact that she was that she merited two beautiful marriages. The first marriage was childless. And then she married her husband's brother and she had 10 children from, from that. And she said it was a beautiful experience to be, to be married to both brothers, you know, and, and uh, one was uh, just a relationship with the husband and the other was a relationship with children. And she described the psychology of Yibam. Uh, but you can see on YouTube, you can see Chalitza. Just, uh, you can Google Chalitza. And... Um, I remember I, I saw Chalitza. So I, since I didn't see it in Baltimore, I witnessed. I was there, so I, I wanted to just see, just see what it looks like. Just to, and uh, it was very interesting. The one I came across uh, were uh, a French woman, a French widow, and the brother of her husband was French too. <coughs> it was very interesting. They both were, were crying during the ceremony because they were thinking about the man who died. Yeah. The man who died was this woman's husband, and the man who died was this man's brother. 
and they were passing tissues to each other as they were thinking about the person that they were connecting to at that moment. What if the brother is married to another woman? No, so, so he has to do chalitza. That, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I mean then, then for sure. That doesn't exonerate him from the chalitza ceremony. But does it exonerate him from the marriage? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the... I mean, they both have to agree. Yeah, yeah. They both have, they both have to agree anyway. Huh? Well, well, first of all, poly- I, I mean, again, Ashkenazim don't allow don't allow polygamy. So, but as I say, that does not affect that does not affect chalitza. Meaning, even if he's married, she cannot marry anybody until she gets the chalitza chalitza release. Okay. So that is the one complication of death. And by the way, adopted children don't count for this purpose. So uh, if she did not have children from her husband, but they adopted children, so Baruch Hashem, they adopted children, but, but for purposes of Yibam, this is still a childless marriage, so she would need chalitza, even if they had adopted uh, children. Okay? So nev- the obligation never falls on him. Uh, it does not. Uh, well, uh, well, okay. Let me put it this way: the obligation of yibum does fall upon him, but 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 uh, chalitza is up to her. If, if if he if she doesn't want yibum, it doesn't, doesn't say he has no obligation of chalitza unless she asks for it. Unless she asks for it, mm-hmm. uh, and in this case, she didn't care, but uh, he uh, wanted to. He wanted to do it, so she was going to accommodate him. And of course, that that's very correct. Uh, there's a story. I'll tell you a, a cute story. Uh, there was a great, great gadol in Europe, perhaps you heard of him, he was actually uh, very close to the Friedeker Rebbe, uh, Rav Chaim Moser Grodzenski. I think the, the Rebbe had a connection to him too, the Rebbe was much younger at the time. Rav Chaim Moser Grodzenski was really like the great, great posek of the generation, and he was in Vilna, and uh, he used to go to the country for the summer, because he had asthma and, and other things. So one time his doctor told him he had to stay into Elul, and even for the Yom Naram, even for Rosh Hashanah. And he really hated this because the people there were not that religious. It was not like Vilna. It was not such a religious community. They had a small minion, but it wasn't uh, the type of community he was used to. But he figured the doctor said he had to stay there, so he stayed there. So uh, one time he's walking outside in the nice uh, weather, and he encounters a Jew that looks like uh, a Litvak, looks like a Lithuanian Jew. Uh, in the, and he, so it's like a familiar type of person. He says, Oh, Baruch Hashem, Shalom Aleichem, so good to see you. What brings you out here in the middle of nowhere? So he says, Well, I have a brother that's a forest ranger here. <laughs> and the brother died, and he left a widow with three children. So I came to marry her so I could help raise the children. Now, let me explain that to marry your brother's wife when she has children is usher do raisa. It's actually forbidden. Yibam is a mit- it's either a mitzvah or an avera. When there are no children, it's a mitzvah. When there are children, it is incest. So Rav Chaim Moser was shocked. Rav Chaim Moser said, you came to marry your brother's wife when she has three children from him? That's forbidden by the Torah. You're not allowed to do that. So the person said, the person didn't know who he was talking to. He says, you know, I can't listen to every you know, guy with a beard who comes along and, and tells me what I can do and what I can't do. You know, I, you know, I, I mean, this makes sense to me. Uh, she needs help. I, mean, I want to marry her. You know, she, she, you know, we'll have a, 
a kosher marriage and everything else. So Rav Chaim Moser says, you know, this is not a chumrah, this is not a minhag, this is not uh, a thing. This is in the Torah itself. The Torah prohibits marrying your brother's wife unless it's yibam, where there are no children. So the person said, no, you know, listen, you know, you can't just tell me these things. I don't know who you are. So he asks the person, what can I do to convince you? What type of rabbi do you have to hear it from? He says, I have to hear it from Rabbi Grodzinski of Vilna. Short of that, you know. Sir so Chaim Moser said, now I know why Hashem stuck me in this place for Rosh Hashanah. He said, I didn't understand why I was stuck here. Now I know that the, this is the way I'm saving this Jew from uh, Avera because he showed him he was Rav Chaim Moser and therefore he was able to teach him, teach him the halacha. So this is a peculiar halacha because it's either incestuous or it's a mitzvah. If there are children, it is incest. If there are no children, it's mitzvah. Although Ashkenazim don't don't do it either way today. Yeah. What happens if there's no brother? Ah, oh, okay. Very excellent. Very excellent. Yeah, yeah. So if there is no brother, she's free. Uh, she's free. There's no bond at all, and she has no restrictions uh, whatsoever. But I'll tell you where there'll be a big problem. The big problem is if there is a brother, but he's not bar mitzvah yet. This can happen. The halacha is that only an adult can give the chalitza. So that actually means, let's say her husband dies and there's like a two-year-old brother, which is possible, you know, the right, two-year-old brother. She's going to have to wait for, what, 11 years? That's an aguna, actually. <laughs> She's going to have to wait 11 years. Uh, she cannot marry for 11 years because... Chalitza cannot be done until the brother is uh, bar mitzvah. Now, interestingly enough, if the brother was not born, uh, for example, let's imagine her husband died and uh, the husband's mother was pregnant. <laughs> the brother was born afterwards. So, uh, th- th- there's no problem there. If a brother is born after the death of his brother, there is no yibam, there is no chalitza. But if the brother was born like one minute before his brother died, then she's going to have to wait uh, until he becomes bar mitzvah for the chalitza ceremony. So there's a lot, a lot of technicalities. If he was born a minute before the husband died? Yep. If he was born a minute before the husband died, she is stuck for 13 years. Oh, well, because at that point, especially if she's childless, she might, not have, she might never be able to have children. You're, you know, you're making, you're making a lot of sense. I mean, your argument is a very good argument. If the whole purpose of the yibam is to, is to facilitate uh, children... Uh, in this particular case, it actually turns out that you're making it worse. It's an excellent point. I, I don't have an answer for that. There's nothing she can do. Uh, there's nothing she can do. Uh, there's adopt there's no, she can, she can adopt. Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 She only needs it from one, not from all. Any and it, anyone is good, but it, it should go in order of, of age, meaning to say uh, the mitzvah is on the oldest. Uh, if the oldest doesn't want to do it, then it goes down the line. So all she needs is one. But like, um, and if she just decides, if like, you know, it's easiest for the brother to do it because they live in the same city, and she, does, she can just 
She can get it from the third, yeah. That, that would be great. That what would if he refuses? What if the brother refuses? Ah, so it's similar. Okay, so the process, it doesn't happen that often, but it can happen. It's very similar to the aguna of get. Now, just like a woman could be an aguna because the husband refuses to give her a get, a woman could be an aguna because the brother-in-law refuses to give her chalitza. And he may hold out for a bribe or give me $100,000. So it's kind of a similar process. She goes to Bastin and the Bastin orders and then he could be beaten up, you know, and the like. Um, but it's, it's a similar problem. It is a similar problem. And uh, I mean, not that many cases as, as Aguna, but uh, a woman can be an Aguna from Chalitza, just like Get. And in fact, uh, the Aguna of Chalitza might, might sometimes be a problem of distance as well because... You know, the brother might be, in fact, there were a lot of, there were cases of Chalitza where a brother was trapped in Russia. In other words, the, the woman and her husband were living in America. The brother was trapped in Stalinist Russia. And I should add one thing. Again, I, I, I keep on bringing in more complications. A Chalitza cannot be done through a Shaliach. That, that's a biggie. Meaning like this. Uh, chalitza requires the physical presence of the brother-in-law. So if he's stuck in Stalinist Russia, then she's stuck. Unlike a get, where let's say a husband is stuck and she's in America, so the husband could make a shaliach here in America to give her the get. Get can be done through shaliach, but chalitza cannot be done through shaliach. So, so chalitza may have, Baruch Hashem, it's, it's rarer, but chalitza can have certain complications. Yeah? Are these, these details, are these halakha, or, or this is not in the Torah, all these details? Uh, well, uh, uh, surprisingly, a lot of them, a lot of them, the details are. Yeah, yeah. If you look at the kiseitze, the same parsha that has get, has yibam and chalitza, so the basic process is in Perak Chafbeis of the Book of Devarim. You can read it there. But a lot of the details about which brother does it, and you know, that, that, that type of thing, there's all tractate of the Talmud. There's a tractate of the Talmud called Yevamos. Yevamos are the laws of Yibam, leveret marriage, and Chalitza. So it's a whole Masechus of the Gemara and a whole part of the Shulchan Aruch, the laws of Yibam and Chalitza. Is Chalitza, like if the woman has any brother-in-law that's not married, like it's not just that if her husband's brother who's closest in age to him is married, then she does, then she's exempt. She's not exempt. No, she's not exempt. Any, any, any unmarried brother, she's still has that. No, 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 no. Even if it's married, no, 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 one second. Uh, a woman needs Chalitza if there's a brother. It makes no difference if he's married or not. Even if all the brothers are married, she is forbidden to get married to anybody until she gets chalitza. They would be obligated to, to give chalitza. No, 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 no. Like, no, 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 no. They're not obligated to, uh, to divorce, so but, but, they're, but uh, they have a mitzvah. If she, want, if she wants, uh, they have a mitzvah to give her chalitza. Chalitza would be their mitzvah. Their mitzvah would be to release her. In other words, what happens is this. If they don't do chalitza and, and they're not going to do yibam, She's in a state of limbo. She cannot, she's like stuck. But she can't marry them, and they can't marry her. That's correct, but she's still, she's still tied to them. Uh, really? Yeah, she is tied to them until she gets chalitza. Uh, there's a whole, this is a new status uh, called Yavama. She's not married to them, 
but she's tied to them and she can't marry anybody else. So she needs chalitza. Even if they're all married, she needs chalitza. The only exception is this. The only exception is, okay, this is very complicated. If, if the Yibam would be incestuous, you don't need chalitza. And I'll, give you an, I'll give you a quickie example. Let's imagine a man marries his niece, which is permitted, permitted. He marries the daughter of his brother, which is permitted. He then dies without children. So the daughter falls liyibam to her father. So in such a case, since that would be incestuous, there is no yibam and there is no chalitza. No chalitza at all. She's not tied at all. She's free to marry. So that's the only exception. Uh, in other words, if the brothers are just married, she still needs chalitza. But if it would be an incestuous relationship, then uh, there is no, uh, there's nothing. There's no, there's no uh, yibam law at all. But if there's another brother, then oh, Excellent. If there's another brother, the other brother has to give her chalitza. You are correct. You are correct. You are correct. You are, you are correct. That's correct. Same thing with him to, to add the question. Again, you know, Yavamos is actually maybe the most complicated tractate in the Talmud. You know, uh, when uh, the guys start learning Yavamos, their heads are spinning like for months. But after a while, it becomes very addictive. You kind of, uh, you know, you like it. You know, it, it, it grows on you. Uh, so I'll give you one more case. And now you're doing some Yavamos today. Uh, let's say two brothers marry two sisters, which is permitted, right? Permitted. Two brothers marry two sisters. You know, two brothers from one family marry two to another family. Now, the halacha is, even though before Rabbeinu Gershom, you're allowed to have two wives, right? But you're not allowed to marry your wife's sister. So if brother one dies and sister one falls to the guy that's married to sister two, that's now an incestuous relationship. So she too does not need yibam or chalitza. But if there's another brother who didn't marry any sister, he would have to either do yibam or chalitza to her. Okay? So that's another. Well, yeah, that's a fam- that's a very that's a very very famous question. It's a very famous question. How could Yaakov marry two sisters? That is incestuous in the eyes of the Torah. One answer would be it was before the Torah was given, so these laws didn't apply. But that's not a great answer because we are told that the patriarchs kept the Torah even before it was given. Another answer Ramban says is that the patriarchs kept the Torah voluntarily only when they lived in Eretz Yisrael and Rachel and Leah were married in Chutz La'aretz. Others say Rachel and Leah converted to Judaism when they married Yaakov and therefore they were no longer related. They were like newly born entities. So it's a, it's a very famous question. But certainly under the laws of the Torah, even when polygamy is permitted, you cannot marry two sisters. Okay? So, he, so then they don't have to do Chalitza? That's correct. That's correct, because when one sister falls liyibam to the one that's married to the other sister, that's now an incestuous union. Yeah. So that's similar to a daughter falling to a, falling to a father, right? Okay. What if... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are three brothers, and two brothers die in the same car accident, and they have wives. Then does the one brother... 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, no, no. No, no. So, so, no, no. no. Oh, okay. You know that that case is that that case is actually discussed. You know, you have the Yavamos, you have the Yavamos head. They're very valuable Yavamos head. Uh, no, but 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 generally speaking, if if two brothers die and both of their wives fall the Yibam, let's assume they're not sisters, then I, as a third brother, have to give chalitza to both of them. To both of them, that's correct. I do have to give chalitza to both of them. Yeah. Okay. You all be well, everybody, and to have a good good week. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. Uh, halacha cannot be changed. On the other hand, halacha sometimes builds into the system principles that will allow it to be applied differently in different cases. So you can call that a change. You know, it's a change in the sense that what we do today may not be what we did a uh, hundred years ago. So that's a change. But it's not a, a principle change. It's, yes. it's an application change. Yes. So application changes you're going to have. Uh, yeah, I mean, a, an example would be, as I mentioned before, uh, can you greet a woman, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the, the principle basically is that certain things were sexually provocative and alluring, and that principle doesn't change. You're not allowed to do those things. But whether a greeting would qualify as that, mm-hmm. that may change. That's an application of a principle. That can change with, uh, with time. So I'm curious, I mean, you, 